This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Laura Kurgan, who leads the Visual Studies curriculum at GSAP and is the director of the Center for Spatial Research. Laura has been conducting the Conflict Urbanism Research and Mapping Project, which is an interactive website and was presented at the Istanbul Design Biennial in 2016. She recently completed the large-scale interactive installation Brain Index at Columbia University's new Jerome Green Science Center, home to the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute. Thanks for joining me, Laura. I always think of you as one of the kind of pioneers who... Uh, have taken architectural skills, drawing and visualizing relationships, and you know made that the main focus of your practice and your research. And I wanted to hear about some of the recent projects, uh, including your focus on Aleppo and the MBBI, as I just mentioned. You know, one of the things that was so fascinating for me when I saw the visualization that you were doing, uh, describing kind of what was happening in Aleppo, is how you were using everything from videos and uh, harvesting through social media to then transform that into into visualizations and, and mapping. Do you want to talk about that process? You know, a lot of people talk about interdisciplinarity in both in architecture and the university, and oftentimes people say about architects um, that they're generalists, you know, that you have to know a lot of things to be able to become, right, to become a good architect. You need a lot of technical know-how, but you also need to uh, have a vision for society, for the future, right, for how you think architecture fits into the world. So I think maybe I take a special place in that, in in that regard, because I think of it as a as a two way circle, um, you know that architects learn a lot from other disciplines and um, often use them in in good ways, uh, sometimes in not so good, little bit derivative, derivative ways. But on the other hand, architects also have a lot to teach other disciplines, and and I think it's that circle that as a practitioner. I feel has become a little bit, you could say, an expertise or, right. a, or a passion, you know, more of to a, bring architecture to other yeah fields other, and practices to other fields and practices because I think that actually architects have uh, very special, um, very special kinds of knowledge um, that other that other people don't. And so I think prior to my coming to Columbia, I actually was engaged in a lot of in a lot of those kinds of practices. Um, to do with, you know, using global positioning satellites, trying to understand the spaces of its satellite imagery, what did it actually mean for um, the discipline of architecture to be engaging with those kinds of military and surveillance technologies, but putting them to good use, um, you know, things like that. So when I did uh, arrive at Columbia, um, it was at a moment um, where GIS geographic information systems were really exploding um, in, other, in other disciplines, so in social sciences, in, geogra- in geographic, there's no geography department at Columbia, in earth sciences, and even in urban planning. But there was barely, barely any teaching of it, barely any knowledge of it in the central library. And so um, 
So when I arrived at Columbia and established the Spatial Information Design Lab, it was really to fill that void at, at Columbia, right? And because of that, um, again, when you think of cartography, mapping, data, right, all of these, all of these things um, involve multiple disciplines, the expertise of multiple disciplines. So data, for example, means very different things to a sociologist than it does to an earth scientist, than it does to a historian, or um, the same can be said of a lot, you know, of a lot of different things. And so because of that, the lab immediately became interdisciplinary because of our expertise, and we would have meetings which involved the library, the Earth, the Earth Institute, um, ISERP, um, right, to try and understand what geographic information systems meant at Columbia. And then um, because, it's, because these systems are not so much... Um, only belong to architecture, only belong to the humanities, it established a research model which is akin to the sciences um, and became, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say easy, but, <laughs> uh, but writing grants um, made sense uh, in, in terms of what can be called research in architecture, which I think is a very murky term. Right, not that easy to define, but when it comes attached to a specific project like spatial inquiry, the relationship between spatial data to urban studies, it right, right, yeah, and so for example, the very first project that the land did, which was uh, uh, prompted actually by a competition at the Architectural League, Architecture and dot dot dot, we did architecture and justice and brought. Um, ideas from architecture, from urban planning, from urban studies to the very vicious and difficult problem of um, incarceration in New York City and beyond. Right, so it's that, can you see the kind of overlap where... That's right, bringing the skills and the ability to bring together and kind of create, make visible all these relationships. Right. But I think yeah. what's interesting in your approach and in the center's approach, and I think that's why it's taken on a very unique place at Columbia, is that it really brings the humanities and the sciences together. You know, it's not about smart cities and a kind of very positivist approach to data, but rather you bring this critical dimension to the reading of the data and then to rendering visible aspects that are kind of latent but not really... Uh, so that that's very particular. That issue of how to use technology and use data um, without being overexcited about its, you know, about right. its uh, positive, right, deterministic, positive yeah. um, values. You, you know, you say you have, it's, it's a resource, you know, data is, is a resource, just like, I don't want to equate it with water and oil, but it's like water and oil, but it's, but it's different um, that you, you know, it is, it is a resource to help us manage and see and evaluate cities, um, but data is produced by people right. and oftentimes with not the, not the same intentions right. as you might have. So algorithms, uh, like Facebook is a great example. Facebook, uh, fake news is a, is a fantastic example, right? We don't understand the algorithms um, which are bringing certain news stories yeah 
to your feed, so we should try and understand them so that we can demand Facebook to do something different, right? So if you just say, oh, it's military, it's corporate, it's, yeah, I'm only there as a passive um, receiver, then nothing changes, right? So you have to, uh, you know, you have to be one step ahead so that, so that you can demand you can demand that things that things change. So how then? How did you? You know, we're here in New York, and of course, um, we're you know very concerned about many issues happening globally. But in particular, like that proximity to what has happened in Aleppo, yeah. you know, through your reading of data, you know, how did you focus on that project? That and, and you know, that's a, it's a. Um, because Aleppo was in the news for a long time and the incredible violence and refugees, you know, moving um, all around was a, actually a very difficult thing to read every day in the news. And I, I didn't immediately jump to say I'm going to do a project on Aleppo. And in fact, at the time, I was much more doing data visualization projects and uh, projects with GIS. I had kind of left satellite imagery uh, by alone for, for a while. And, um, but as you know, it takes a long time to write books, and my book came out in 2013 and at, you know, about that same, at about that same time. And so people started writing to me um, about Aleppo and did I have any satellite imagery? Was I doing anything similar with Aleppo? And I decided I really, I had to engage uh, with it. Um, and in fact, I, I tried a few things first through teaching. Um, and if you remember, it was actually too difficult for students to, to take on at, at, at that particular moment. But it didn't stop me, and I sort of kept, I kept going. Um, and then I think with the, Mellon, with the Mellon grant, it actually enabled me to then do the seminar in the way that I needed to do it and prepare um, to prepare first a reading of what was going on, which was not very easy to do, because in the news, you know, you see things in the news all the time, and it's day by day, right? So there's damage in Aleppo, and it's in 2011, and then it never gets updated, or, you know, there's some big crisis in Damascus or in Homs or wherever, where, and the news is actually very sporadic, so it's very hard... Um, to teach something in the middle of an event which is going on. And so what we did was we made a platform um, so that those things could get updated, so that you could actually put all those things together. And if you do something like that, then you allow students to see it in a way that they might not be able to see in the news. It's just you reading one violent story after another. It's too hard to process and so while some people might have thought, oh, it's actually viewing from a distance, you're a thousand miles away, you're looking at it with satellite imagery, in fact, um, it put together something in a, uh, so that people could understand it in a way that might not have been possible before. And it is a project, actually, we stopped it at the end of 2016, yeah. after, the obviously, the siege of Aleppo ended and... Um, 
Assad government uh, reclaimed um, Aleppo, we stopped um, documenting then. But what I would like to do is, now is start documenting the reconstruction process. Um, you know, I used to think that the project was about engaging refugees in the rebuilding uh, project, yeah. but I think that was at a moment where I thought Assad would not be in power anymore, and it would, you know, there would there would be a possibility of designing a more equitable Aleppo or more equitable city. But that that didn't happen. But that doesn't mean uh, that we shouldn't stop watching the construction process and making sure that, you know, uh, following whether it's Solidaire who's right, right, coming right. in and, you know, people right. People are waiting. People are waiting, yeah. <laughs> they, they have a model ready to go. That's um, right. They um, might or they might not. I don't, you know, yeah. they probably they probably do. You know, but in the meantime, uh, what we did do, which I think was, you know, some of the things that were unique, was bringing together multiple data sets, and each data set in and of itself is incomplete. Each one has its own story, and we acknowledge how incomplete all the data about Aleppo really is. Um, but we've created some form of an archive. Um, so the one thing we have done are damaged monuments. We haven't published that yet, actually, because we're not sure that it's true. Correct. We're yeah. waiting to make sure everything is correct. Um, number two, we mapped um, YouTube video and archived it. So we have like 300 gigabytes of YouTube video so for safekeeping in case it disappears at, at any point. But right now, the map links to live um, to things that are actually on YouTube. Um, and that's something that no one's done. So, for example, to, you know, I would never have said to my students, watch every single YouTube video and try uh, and forensically look at it and see exactly what's happening the way that forensic architecture you know, does one case at a time, although that's incredibly fantastic work and we're very akin in our kind of approach to the use of data. Um, the students actually came up with this idea on their own to map uh, the YouTube video because we had made a map of Aleppo, um, which is neighborhood by neighborhood. You can browse the city by neighborhood, which, number one, was unusual. Um, and then, number two, because YouTube video is has a meta tag of a neighborhood name, all they had to do was search the neighborhood name and a date and they could locate it onto the map. So if somebody wanted to do forensic analysis of various YouTube videos on specific dates, they could use our archive to trace back. To trace back. Yeah. Right. So it's more right? So it's a different it's a different kind of a project, which is why we use words like, you know, uh, the the uh, memory of destruction rather than the destruction of memory, right? Because right? so much data is created during a war that it creates a kind of a memory. It doesn't in archive, and we work within that kind of a... And it's so interesting to think because, of course, usually it takes so long to reconstruct that memory or to unearth it and to put it together. And in this case, it was almost in tandem, you know, that you were trying to make sense or construct an archive as things were, were happening. And in this day and age where we're living a kind of constant 24-hour news cycle where it's, you know, you have no sense of 
the longer term changes that are taking place. Mm -hmm. It's like taking distance, but then kind of constructing a sort of map that is immediately trying to make sense and visualize the changes that are happening. So it's interesting that that practice, you know, can go from understanding a context such as Aleppo and then kind of shifting to the brain and the synapses, right, and making sense of how, you know, which is like another territory now of incredible new findings and, you know, this incredible installation that you've done at at the MBBI that tries to visualize how the brain makes new memories. Right, so it's interesting because I think I could I can talk about two things to do with the, the, the Mind-Brain Behavior Institute, which is now called the Zuckerman Institute, right. so I can shorten it by just saying Zuckerman, Zuckerman Institute. The mission or the one of the missions of that institute is to, to be multidisciplinary too, right? In, in, because the brain is something brings all these things together, they want to also go out, you know, into, uh, to the university and bring them all back, bring everything back together. Um, but that project started because the new Manhattanville campus had what is called an urban layer, right, planned into it. And the mandate of the university was that layer is open to the public. Um, and so the ground floor of the Zuckerman Institute has an education center, right, K through 12 classroom, and it also has a clinic which is open to the community. And I think one of the biggest public spaces, interior public spaces on the whole Columbia campus, including this one, right, so it's 100 feet long and 27 feet high and wide, um, which you need no ID, right? to go through. So you can walk through um, this lobby or whatever you want to call it and then you scan yourself in when you go up to the building. So um, so they went through a number of ideas about the space and I think Renzo Piana's office drew up lots of them including you know, an interior market and a uh, um, I, I don't know what, they were I think a school, a whole school which became this, the, this amazing K-12 K classroom. Um, so there were a lot of things that were proposed. Um, and it only came... And so I went to a few of those meetings, um, and I didn't, you know, sort of bumble around a little bit <laughs> uh, trying, to, trying to first listen uh, to what they wanted. And then I was invited to give a talk to the Manhattanville Development Group, about data visualization. And it was completely disassociated uh, from this project. And that's where I met Tom Jessel. And he somehow caught his imagination that uh, visualization could also be communication, which is uh, somewhat what our lab is expert at. Might not be with neuroscience data, but it really is with you know all kinds of other data that we not only uh, uh, do data analysis, but we also communicate with that data to say important things about society, right? So he saw that, quote, his imagination, and that's how the project kept evolving. Um, And it wasn't until I um, introduced him to Mark Hansen, who's over at the Brown Institute in 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 the journalism school, 
Um, and we had just finished collaborating on a project with Dolores Cofidio and Renfro called Exits, which was um, communicating with data about uh, how and why people move around the world um, for political, economic, and environmental reasons. And you know that was an immersive 360-degree um, uh, installation, and it was very uh, hard to see. You can only see it if it's uh, in, a, in a museum somewhere. But Mark had also done um, public installations um, at the New York Times building, um, as well as other places. And so that, and he's also a statistician, understands data very well, and, and so I think it was between the two of us we convinced them to do a multimedia um, installation on the ground floor, which you know m- networked itself to the rest of the building, and at the same time communicated the drop dead gorgeous images you know that those scientists produce every day uh, in their experiments and try and explain that to anybody walking past, you know, walking past the exhibit. And I think that caught the imagination of both Renzo Piano and of the directors of the Institute, because it, it really, it just sort of expanded a definition of what public space is in that, in that particular building, right? So I think, you know, if the same project had been, you know, just for the business school, it wouldn't have been as exciting because you, I don't know, maybe you would have made it exciting. Yeah, I would have made it, but you know, just the the neuroscience images are just—they really, they really are amazing. And so, what's ended up there um, is a platform. Really, think of it as a as a interactive platform, and um, and as something which needs to live on. It needs to change every year and uh, tell stories about the science that's going on in the building at the moment. And so, there's also a kind of interactive aspect, right? Where you yeah, can, it's, it's, you, you it's can interactive, go. yeah. So, you, so there's a very giant screen, which is a current model, model of the brain, kind of artistically uh, interpreted. It could change as the model of the brain evolves, because that is the cutting edge of science right now. Um, they still don't understand... Yeah, with 100 billion neurons in your brain, it's actually very hard to understand the networks uh, between them. So people still don't understand exactly how the brain works or how to model the brain. So that big aspect is that brain, and it's called the brain index because each region of the brain has a specific function. So memory, right, even actually the way we experience space has to do with memory because we only can walk around a city because we remember a space in a certain way. That's not one of the stories of the Institute, but I'm very interested in that concept, which is for my next studio. So then the stories reference an in, uh, a part of the brain or index a piece, a part of the brain or a network between the brain. And then we've done three things. We've illustrated it in kind of a very accessible way with illustrated drawings, not really scientific drawings. And then the other are showing artifacts of the experiments, so the more opaque images that you don't understand until they're explained to you. And then we've taken the games of the scientists, that's the third thing we've done, 
um, and, and reinterpreted them as little interactives within those stories. So that's kind of the four pieces of that. Of that and so index. you were zooming in, you were saying that you want to dive into the memory aspect for your studio. For Is that stu what's next yeah, for you? Yeah, I really, I'm going to teach a, a neuroscience uh, studio this fall, and um, what I want to do is think about... Uh, spaces of learning, spaces, any, any space in the city where learning occurs, and that can be institutional, commercial, um, uh, institutional, commercial, or public, or, yeah. any, or any public space, and then show how, in most cases, those learning spaces don't really uh, produce curiosity, because you learn through curiosity, especially in neuroscience, in neuroscience terms. And then going to unpack these new discoveries um, of scientists, which is the way that you remember uh, these cells in your brain called place cells. And now there's a new um, interpretation of the relationship between place cells and grid cells. And that has to do with cognitive mapping, which is a right, which we right. all learned That's in right. architecture school, right. we learned to hate. Yes, and, and now I'm, it's coming back. It's, it's coming back in the wrong ways, and I want to correct <laughs> the ways, uh, I want to try and <laughs> correct the ways in which it's coming back, and maybe, you know, maybe rewrite the image yeah. of the city with new, with, yeah. with contemporary neuroscience concepts. That's the large, that would be my large goal with do, that particular Do you know that Solidaire and the reconstruction of Beirut was all based on Kevin Lynch's yeah. uh, image of the city and this idea that people would remember these kind yeah. of paths and monuments and, um, and in fact that was used I think in, a, in mixed ways but I think it would be I mean, it's interesting to think about that and that moment right, right. and to think about Aleppo and your right. kind of rewriting of, of cognitive mapping. I read the, the, about the scientist who defined the word cognitive, uh, cognitive maps and was a behavioral scientist. And even he admits that his experiments were on rats and that there were two different uh, kinds of memory. There was a strip memory and a generalized memory and that all his... Everything that he was talking about in terms of cognitive psychology, uh, cognitive maps, was the strip and not the general. And so this is what I'm trying to correct Kevin Lynch because I think it was a very, this is the, this is the danger that architects um, borrow from science, but you know, they instrumentalize can't it instrumentalize it with their yeah. own right. And so if you think about memory, Uh, and cognition and neuroscience. You know, neuroscience is a, is a high-dimensional space. You cannot understand. And architects, I don't think, even know what high-dimensional space is. And it's actually quite... It's not that complicated. In fact, you know, there are 30, 40, 50 dimensions to so many things in the world, and that can be like anything, right? It can be politics, uh, aesthetics, time, you know, height, depth, breadth, light, you know, all the things, but each of those is a dimension. But when you try and represent it, you only have either two, three, or four. So you're always simplifying. No matter if you're a scientist or whether you're an architect, you're always simplifying when you try and represent things. So I want to take that apart and say, okay, how do you... How do, yeah. and, but this is my other side, right? This is very abstract visual, visual studies, um, which is very different than the 
very precise, uh, data-oriented, data political, ethical, you know, how do you how do you bring about change? And I think the two of them the two of them can be related. I'm not someone who says you know there's formalism and there's politics. The formalists love to say you know uh, forget politics, but actually I think there's no politics without form. And they I just wish more people would agree on that kind of thing rather than keep different camps. You know. Well, so. you're certainly making the connection and visualizing the politics yeah. and rendering political the forms. I think through the kind of work that you do is really inspiring. So thank you so much, Laura, and uh, I look forward to your studio on, uh, on revamping uh, uh, Kevin Lynch. <laughs> Thanks a lot. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.